With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market. Support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22. Or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul Annual Appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you. Salt Lake City is the capital of the state of Utah. The state itself is one of the most diverse in the Union. It has everything from dry deserts to snowy mountains. The city was founded in 1847 by settlers led by Brigham Young. They were members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and they were trying to escape the persecution they were experiencing on the East Coast. The city was planned around a massive temple built in what is now called Temple Square. They petitioned for the area to be recognized as the state of Deseret in 1849, but were denied. The government established a much smaller area as the Utah Territory in 1850. Salt Lake City had major growth with mining jobs and when the Transcontinental Railroad was completed just north of the city. Now it's considered the crossroads of the West having I-15 and I-80 both pass through the city. President James Buchanan actually declared the Utah Territory in rebellion after Brigham Young refused to step down as governor over disagreements over the church's original observation of polygamy. The president sent troops, but the city had been deserted. The church eventually abandoned its practice of polygamy in 1890, paving the way for Utah to become a state in 1896. Mark Hacking spent his entire life spinning a massive web of lies. After five years of marriage, he was living the life of a completely different person, and eventually his wife discovered that he was no longer the man she married. He tried to spin more lies, but it wasn't working, so he took one last drastic step to ensure his house of cards didn't come tumbling down. This is Monsters. Mark Hacking was born on April 24, 1976, to Doug and Janet Hacking. The Hackings were members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and had a large family. Mark had three brothers, Lance, Scott, and Chad, as well as three sisters, Tiffany, Sarah, and Julie. 
They lived in Orem, Utah, about 40 miles or 65 kilometers south of Salt Lake City. Doug was a pediatrician who was well-respected in the town. Mark was considered a clumsy kid who loved to be the center of attention. While camping with the Boy Scouts, he rolled into an extinguished fire pit while he was sleeping and woke up covered in ash. When all the other boys started laughing, Mark lavished in the spotlight. He then started setting up situations where he would have accidents to make other kids laugh. These were the first accounts of Mark's deceit, which would eventually become a much bigger part of his life. By his teens, Mark was lying excessively in order to inflate his own ego. It seemed to work, and he was known to be popular. He met a girl named Lori when he was in the 11th grade and she was in the 10th, both at Orem High School. Lori Soares was born on December 31, 1976, in California and was put up for adoption. She was adopted at four months old by Araldo and Thelma Soares, who had previously adopted a boy named Paul. They lived in Fullerton, California for the first 10 years of Lori's life, until Araldo and Thelma got divorced. Araldo and Paul remained in California, but Thelma wanted to be closer to the LDS community in Utah, so she and Lori moved to Orem. Lori, who was also popular in high school, went camping with some friends at Lake Powell when she was 15 years old. It was on this trip that she met Mark hacking, though she didn't really pay him much attention at first. It wasn't until Mark tried to adjust a log in the campfire with his bare hands and got burnt that she really got to know him. Lori took it upon herself to treat his wounds and the pair got to know each other. From that point on, friends said the two were inseparable. They dated throughout the rest of high school. When he graduated from Orem High School, Mark volunteered to go on a mission for the LDS Church. Becoming a Mormon missionary is like boot camp for convincing people that what you're telling them is true. It's just the nature of proselytizing. This training also prepared them for repeated rejection since they would more often than not have people slam the door in their face. This is why Mormons tend to do well in sales jobs, and also part of the reason that Utah has more multi-level marketing activity per capita than any other U.S. state. For Mark's mission, God decided he needed to work in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Winnipeg and Orem couldn't be more different. He was leaving warm, mountainous Utah for cold, flat Manitoba. Mark didn't care where he went, though, as his goal was to get away from Utah for a while. He wanted freedom, and he couldn't get it at home, where everyone was watching, ready to report any indiscretion to the church. It shouldn't come as any surprise that missionaries end up in trouble while away from home. They're usually fresh out of high school and have zero experience in the world outside of the church. They're not supposed to do anything that the other young adults in the area they've been sent to are doing. Apart from drinking or smoking, they can't watch movies, read, or listen to music unless it's from the church. They're expected to get up at 6.30 in the morning and do nothing but work until 10.30 at night. These temptations became too much for Mark and he began smoking, dating, and watching movies. Of course, Mark still had a girlfriend back in Utah, but Mark seemed to assume the departure to another country meant the relationship was on hold. One of the other elders that was on the mission with Mark said that he never heard him mention Lori the whole time he was in Winnipeg. Eventually, the church learned of Mark's extracurricular activities and he was sent home early from his mission. Having a young adult get sent home from their mission put a lot of shame on a family, but it seemed Mark had told his friends and family that he'd been sent home because he was injured in an accident, so they believed he hadn't done anything wrong. Lori's friends said she always seemed a little troubled by the reason Mark gave for coming home early. 
After Lori graduated from high school, she began attending Weber State University in Ogden, Utah, about 35 miles or 56 kilometers north of Salt Lake City. Going to a state school instead of a Mormon school meant that Lori was able to test the waters of a world outside of the church, but she would never stray far. After a year at Weber, Lori transferred to the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. While studying in their business program, she spread her wings and traveled to Washington, D.C. for an internship. Her and her best friend also took trips to Savannah, Georgia, and celebrated a New Year's Eve in New York City's Times Square. Lori was about to graduate from the University of Utah with honors when she and Mark got married at the Mormon Temple in Bountiful, just northeast of Salt Lake City. Weddings at the temple are reserved for people who are deemed worthy, so it seems that Mark's early return from his mission didn't affect his worthiness. The marriage ceremony in the temple consists of stripping off your clothes and having all of your body parts washed of sin, specifically the head, eyes, nose, neck, shoulders, arms, legs, feet, and loins. Then you have to have olive oil touch all of those body parts. Then you put on some white garments that have had a symbol sewn over the right knee, the navel, and both nipples. This is a straight-up cult. If someone brought me into their quote-unquote temple and explained that they wanted me to do this, I'd be like, this is a cult, I'm out. Pair that with the fact that there are things that go on in the temple that members aren't allowed to tell non-members. Super culty. After a honeymoon in Las Vegas, ironically nicknamed Sin City, Lori moved into Mark's apartment and they began their married life together. They became the managers of the apartment complex in exchange for free rent. Lori said she was happy that Mark cleaned up after himself after hearing horror stories of husbands who leave their socks laying around wherever. She did notice that he would occasionally tell a small lie. Nothing serious, but it always kind of concerned her. Mark was still in college and was planning to go to medical school. Mark and Lori shared mostly different interests. When Mark wasn't in school or at home playing Nintendo, he liked to spend time outdoors in the mountains. Lori preferred indoor activities like scrapbooking or going to the movies. Mark finally got Lori to start going running with him. This would be an important addition to their daily routine that was pretty unremarkable otherwise. Lori would go to work at Wells Fargo as a financial assistant and Mark would go to school, using their free time to go to City Creek Canyon to go running and even entering a few 10Ks. Soon, Mark was ready to go to medical school and the couple prepared to move across the country so he could attend the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill School of Medicine. On the morning of July 19, 2004, Mark began calling family members, telling them that he was concerned that Lori had gone out to City Creek Canyon that morning to go running, but didn't return. He was calling them from Memory Grove Park, where he was walking around asking people if they had seen her. Soon, family members joined him at the park. They eventually found her car parked nearby and knocked on the door of the house it was parked in front of. Unfortunately, the residents hadn't seen her. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul Annual Appeal. 
Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you. At 10.07 a.m. that day, Mark called the Salt Lake City Police to report Lori missing. A few minutes later, he called Lori's employer and told them that she was missing and that he had located her car. Then he called the police again at 10.46 a.m. and again reported Lori missing. Some people shrugged it off as stress and panic, but authorities weren't so quick to do that. They immediately thought Mark was suspicious. Police and volunteers showed up and began searching the park. The media began reporting that a jogger had gone missing, and by that evening, Mark was on the news. He said, quote, Usually when she runs in the morning, I go with her. I just didn't today. End quote. Hmm, the one day you don't go running with her, she goes missing. How convenient. As more friends and family arrived to help look for Lori, none of them had any thought that Mark could be involved in her disappearance. Most people that knew them saw them as the perfect couple. They never seemed to be at odds with each other. Lori was happy and excited that Mark was going to medical school and she had even told some of her friends and relatives that she was five weeks pregnant. Authorities searched Mark and Lori's apartment as well as both of their vehicles. When they searched Lori's vehicle, they found that the driver's seat was back way too far for a person of Lori's height. The mirrors were also adjusted for a much larger person. In Mark's car, they found blood in the back of the car and handprints around the back door consistent with a person bracing themselves as they loaded something heavy into the back seat. They also found a receipt for the purchase of a new mattress at a nearby mattress store time-stamped on July 19th at 10.23 a.m. So Mark had called the police to report Lori missing, then he went and bought a new mattress, took it to his house, and then called police again to report Lori missing. That seems suspicious. When a detective asked him about the receipt, he said that Lori had gotten a stain on their old mattress a week prior, so he threw the mattress away. When they asked what they'd been sleeping on between then and now, he claimed that they had just been sleeping on the box spring. The detectives found that to be extremely unlikely. Also, why would you feel the need to buy a new mattress after realizing that your wife is missing? It made absolutely no sense. In the apartment, they found Lori's purse, which happened to have her wallet and keys in it. How did she drive to the park without her keys, I wonder? In the master bedroom, they found the brand new mattress, all made up with sheets that were still covered in creases like they had just been removed from their package. In the bedside table, they found multiple knives, one of which being a hunting knife with blood and fibers on it. In the second bedroom, they found a folded-up letter written to Mark from Lori. When investigators went to Wells Fargo to interview her co-workers, they told them exactly what Mark said when he called the morning of Lori's disappearance. One of the employees answered, and Mark asked him how Lori was doing. The employee told him that she hadn't arrived yet and gave the phone to their manager. Then Mark told her manager that she had gone running that morning and she must have never come back. Lori's manager was concerned and told Mark to hang up and call the police, which he already had. He had already called the police that morning to report Lori missing. So why now was he calling her at work, acting like he didn't know she was missing? The investigators wondered the same thing. Lori's manager also told detectives that Lori left work the previous day in tears. She had called the University of North Carolina to ask a question about financial aid and was apparently given some bad news. When they put the timeline together, they realized that Mark would have had to have made the call to Wells Fargo while he was shopping for a new mattress. Mark's behavior was becoming more and more baffling. 
Based on the blood evidence and the hunting knife, homicide detectives were brought in and the case quickly became a suspected murder, though the police department tried to keep that quiet for now. As investigators asked Mark more and more questions, he could tell that they suspected he had done something to his wife. They learned that the blood was Lori's and were sure that he killed her, but they didn't have a body, which meant they couldn't prove that she was dead. They did find out that the University of Utah had surveillance cameras on their dumpster 24-7, and they had told investigators that they had caught someone dumping something large into the dumpster on the night before Lori was reported missing. As they uncovered more evidence that pointed to him having murdered Lori, Mark began to panic and racked his brain to try to come up with some way to secure his freedom. Mark had spent his entire life hiding from his problems by lying. It started when he was young in order to get attention, but it really took hold when he had to convince people close to him why he had come home early from his mission. It would still be his go-to ten years later. In the early morning hours of July 20th, Mark was found running around the parking lot of a downtown hotel wearing nothing but sandals. He had begun drinking earlier that day, and when he arrived at the hotel, he downed a handful of barbiturates and wrote a note on his Palm Pilot that read, quote, This is justice, end quote. Then he stripped off his clothes before putting his sandals back on and running around the parking lot screaming at the top of his lungs. Sounds awfully deliberate, doesn't it? Well, that's because it was. Mark didn't want to kill himself. Mark decided he was going to bite the bullet, confess to what he had done, and get himself an insanity defense. Unfortunately for Mark, he knew as much about acting insane as he did about getting away with murder. When police arrived on the scene, they recognized Mark and they knew exactly what he was doing. One clue was that he was completely naked except that he had put his sandals back on to protect his feet. If he was out of his mind, he wouldn't have been concerned about his feet. He would have just stripped off all of his clothes and started running around. They didn't arrest him or even initiate a psych hold. They called and had his brother pick him up. Mark admitted himself into the University of Utah Psychiatric Unit for observation. While Mark was now resting comfortably in a psych facility, police were uncovering mountains of evidence. They found a mattress in the dumpster of the church ward across the street from their apartment, which matched the box spring in Mark's bedroom, the one that now had a brand new mattress and sheets on it. They noticed that part of the top of the mattress was cut out and removed for some reason. This was the same time that the media began digging into Mark's life. They knew that he and Lori were about to move so he could go to medical school at the University of North Carolina, so they called the school to get a comment. Instead of a comment, they were informed that Mark Hacking wasn't enrolled in any program at the school and he had never even applied. This explained what Lori was crying about the previous day. When she called the University of North Carolina, they informed her that her husband wasn't enrolled there and they didn't even have an application on file. Mark's lies were starting to unravel. Once the investigators learned about that, they called the University of Utah and asked about the status of Mark Hacking as a student. The school revealed that Mark hadn't been attending classes for two years. He had not graduated anything. On the day his wife and mother-in-law were supposed to attend his graduation ceremony, Mark claimed he was sick and even ingested something to make himself throw up. When Mark said he was feeling better later that day, Thelma suggested that he put on his cap and gown and she took pictures of him outside his apartment. Thelma showed those pictures to authorities, realizing later that she had never actually witnessed his graduation. 
It turned out that Mark would pretend to go to school, but then he would return home and spend the day playing Nintendo. He worked a night shift job as a hospital orderly, which gave him the scrubs and the hospital access to maintain his lie that he was going to school and headed toward a medical degree. Since they knew that Mark had dumped evidence in at least three dumpsters, they sent a team to the local landfill to start searching for a body. A landfill is actually extremely organized and they know where garbage from various trucks is placed on various days. They were able to narrow down the location to one section, but it was still a lot of garbage and it had been thoroughly compacted. They had to work layer by layer with rakes to pull up compacted garbage and check it for human remains before moving it to the side. The landfill reeked of decomposing waste and it was close enough to the Great Salt Lake that there were seagulls everywhere. Mark's family didn't want to believe that he had murdered Lori, but eventually the evidence became too overwhelming. Two of Mark's brothers, Lance and Scott, went to the psychiatric hospital and asked him to tell them the truth. He didn't have anywhere else to hide. His lies had been revealed and he was now out of options. He broke down and finally told the truth, possibly for the first time since he was a little boy. On July 16th, shortly before Lori left for work, she called the University of North Carolina to discuss financial aid options. It was then that the school informed her that her husband was not enrolled and in fact he had never applied. Her co-workers saw her leaving work in tears. When she confronted Mark at home, he told her there was a computer error and he was able to clear it up. Mark was used to just creating a new lie to explain away a previous lie when questions arose and having everyone just believe him. This time, though, Lori called the University of North Carolina back to check on the status of Mark's enrollment. She made the call after hours, so she left a message and was expecting a return call on Monday. She was suspicious of Mark and he knew his secret life was about to be exposed. She had been suspicious of Mark many times before and now she was sure that he was lying. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul annual appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you. At some point that weekend, both Lori and Mark attended a going-away party held by her co-workers and they said she seemed to be in better spirits. She was likely just putting on a brave face because by Sunday night at the apartment, the couple had a fight about Mark's life. She knew he had been lying for years and she wanted him to change or leave. She was especially upset at the idea of having to raise their child without a father, which is what she would do if he didn't change. Mark distracted himself with Nintendo games while Lori went to bed in tears. Before she went to sleep, though, she wrote him a letter explaining that he needed to change. She said, quote, I hate coming home from work because it hurts to be home in our apartment. I can't imagine life with you if things don't change. I got someone I don't want to spend the rest of my life with unless changes are made. End quote. When Mark was finished with his video games, he read the letter. Mark's Mormon upbringing taught him that he was in charge of the household and there was no greater offense than for a man to be insulted in his own home by a woman. 
women are seen as second-class citizens in the LDS Church. They don't even get to go to heaven if they aren't married. They're only allowed access to paradise if they're with a man. It really is a horrible, horrible misogynistic belief system, and every woman on the planet deserves better than that. Lori had looked him in the eyes and called him a liar. He saw that as an attack on his manhood. Forget the fact that he was, in fact, a fucking liar. Everything about his life, not even just with her, but before her, was a lie. But no, that's not the point. A woman was questioning a man. Let's focus on that bullshit. He knew that when she got up in the morning, she was going to call her mom and tell her about his lies. Then the news would spread and he would be the talk of the Mormon community. That would mean his father, a doctor with three other successful sons, would find out that he was not only not going to medical school, but he wasn't even a college graduate. Doug had scheduled time off from his practice to help his son and daughter-in-law move across the country, and now he would know it was all an elaborate lie. In Mark's mind, Lori had essentially killed the version of him that he had created with his lies. She was a murderer, and she needed to atone for her sin. He walked into the second bedroom, set the letter on a shelf, and picked up his twenty-two caliber rifle. He walked into the master bedroom, where Lori was fast asleep in their bed, completely defenseless. He pointed the rifle directly at the back of her head and pulled the trigger. Lori was dead, and Mark somehow believed that this would be the answer to his problems. He set down the gun and walked to a nearby convenience store where he bought a pack of cigarettes. Now he was free to smoke and drink and do whatever he wanted without Lori there to catch him. He already had been for some time, but he had to constantly make sure it was hidden from Lori. Now he was free. Mark pulled Lori off the bed and wrapped her body in garbage bags. Then he used a hunting knife from the bedside table to cut the blood-soaked top of the mattress off. He shoved the mattress top and the bloody sheets into garbage bags and loaded them into the back of his Dodge Durango with Lori's body. He set the rest of the mattress on top of his SUV and drove across the street to his church ward where he dropped the mattress carcass into the dumpster behind the building. He drove to the University of Utah Psychiatric Hospital and backed up to the dumpster behind that building. He lifted Lori's body into the dumpster and dropped her in. To him now, she was just garbage that he needed to get rid of. He knew the dumpster would be picked up the following morning, and soon she would be forever buried in the massive landfill just outside the city. Back at the apartment, Mark began the process of cleaning up, which he did a horrible job of. He claims to have wiped the blood from the hunting knife and put it back in the drawer, but when detectives found it, it still had blood and fibers from the mattress on it. He had also left the bloody pillow that Lori was sleeping on in the apartment. He wadded it up and threw it away. He thought the bedroom was clean, but there were tiny specks of blood all over. After working through the night to dispose of the evidence and clean the apartment, Mark had decided he was going to use the old classic, wife-went-missing story. Obviously, we'll never know the amount of people who kill their spouse, claim they went missing, and get away with it because, well, they got away with it. But it does seem like the story ends in an incarcerated spouse more often than not. This seems to be a common story for husbands, as the classic, masked intruders killed my husband, is the common story for wives, which also seems to not usually work well. Mark thought he would claim Lori went missing, play the grieving husband, and then move to North Carolina on his own to start a whole new life as a single man. He assumed everyone would believe that he was a poor grieving husband who just wanted to get away from the painful memories and start over fresh. Except that Mark was not as good of a murderer as he thought he was. 
His plan was to go to Memory Grove Park and pretend to be looking for Lori, but he also wanted to make sure he replaced the mattress as soon as possible. I guess he didn't think anyone would notice that he went and bought a mattress right in the middle of looking for his missing wife. In the early morning hours when it was still dark, he drove Lori's car, using his own key, not thinking to take her purse with him, to an area near the park and then walked back home. Then he went to the mattress store and purchased a new mattress, but while he was there, he called the police for the first time to report Lori missing. He was still there when he called Lori's work and pretended to not know she wasn't at work. Then he took the mattress home, put it on the box spring, put on a new set of sheets, and drove his own car to the park to start looking for Lori. Once there, he started calling family members and then called police again to report her missing. Once police arrived, they quickly began logging evidence against Mark. It was obvious almost immediately that he had killed his wife and was pretending she was missing. In the psychiatric hospital, Mark was sure that he was setting himself up for a perfect insanity defense, but the doctors weren't fooled. They knew that Mark wasn't insane, he simply had a personality disorder. He was obviously a sociopath and that did not explain away the murder of his wife. Mark thought that, because he worked as an orderly at that very hospital, he would be able to replicate what he saw there. He didn't realize that psychiatric disorders are much more complicated than just what you see on the surface. Doctors knew his behavior didn't match that of a psychotic break, so when the police came to place Mark under arrest, they didn't protest. Mark was transferred to the county jail where he successfully convinced the doctor there that he was suicidal. Something that's not hard. If you tell a doctor during booking that you're suicidal, they kind of have to take it seriously. Mark Hacking was afraid of what might happen to him in general population, so he was happy to have his own cell. Then, even though he had confessed to murdering Lori, a confession that was 100% admissible in court, he pleaded not guilty through his high-profile lawyer that his parents hired for him. Mark managed to stave off boredom by making friends with other inmates in the county jail one of whom you might recognize from one of my other videos, Brian David Mitchell. Brian kidnapped and raped Elizabeth Smart in 2002 and claimed that he was a prophet of God who was told by God to take the 14-year-old Elizabeth at knife point and make her his wife. Maybe Mark was trying to get tips on how to act for an insanity defense. Who knows? Mark claimed that they had had a singing competition but never revealed who won. Ah, what a fun time in jail after you've murdered your wife. While Mark sat in jail awaiting trial, teams of police were still searching the dump. The evidence against Mark was bad, but a body would make it a slam dunk. Little by little, grid by grid, police worked around the clock to pick through all of the garbage that had been put in the landfill the day the dumpster at the church ward was emptied. They continually got their hopes up when they would find a bag containing dark hair, but it would end up being garbage from a barber or hair salon. On October 1, 2004, Sergeant J.R. Nelson pulled a rake across a garbage bag and found more hair. This was long, curly, dark hair, just like Lori's. He knelt down and pulled back more of the garbage bag and saw flesh and bone amongst the hair. He stood up and yelled to the other searchers. Lori's remains had been found. At the medical examiner's office, they were able to use parts of the jaw to confirm they were Lori Hackings through dental records. Otherwise, the garbage compactor did a very good job of destroying any evidence. They couldn't even determine that she had been shot in the head since all that was left was just skull fragments. They simply had the remains as a means of proving beyond a reasonable doubt that Lori was dead and not just missing.
They also weren't able to prove that Lori was pregnant at the time of her death. Mark admitted to knowing she was pregnant at the time he killed her, but the district attorney said that wasn't enough to charge him with fetal homicide. The defense could easily argue that he and Lori could have been mistaken about the pregnancy. Mark was charged with first-degree murder for the death of Lori. The idea of getting away with the perfect murder and starting a new life in North Carolina gradually faded and Mark began to accept that his future would positively include prison time. His lawyer explained that the jury was going to hear how he admitted to pointing a rifle at his wife's head as she was sound asleep and murdered her in cold blood after a lifetime of lies. Even the best lawyer in the world couldn't change that. On April 15, 2005, Mark finally bit the bullet and changed his plea to guilty. In the state of Utah, for some reason, the maximum punishment for first-degree murder is five years to life, which seems extremely low. He had a year added to his sentence for the use of a firearm during the murder, so he was sentenced to six years to life in prison. Obviously, many people, especially Lori's family, were appalled at the idea that Mark could be out of prison in only six years. The good thing is that six years is only the amount of time when he could possibly be up for parole. The Utah Board of Pardons has gone on record saying that they have set Mark Hacking's first possible parole hearing for 2035, which essentially gives him a more fitting sentence of 30 years to life. Mark thought he could live a life of lies and never have his family find out. What was going to happen after they moved to North Carolina? What was going to happen when he was supposed to graduate medical school? What was going to happen when he was supposed to start working as a doctor? At some point, he should have known he was going to get caught. But Mark was a sociopath who thought he could keep adding on lies to cover his own ass. He only thought of what was going to happen right now, how to keep the lies going right now. He was even attached to the person he had become in his lies, feeling like Lori exposing him was killing that person, and her doing that was wrong, not his years of lying. It takes a special kind of person to be so deeply selfish that they would wind up in Mark's position. Then you add to that how easy it was for him to pick up a gun and kill his wife and unborn child without hesitation. That makes him a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. I'm Brett. And I'm Alice. 
And together we host a weekly true crime podcast called The Prosecutors. In every episode, we bring our unique perspective as full-time prosecutors to the most famous and debated true crime mysteries. Whether it's Maura Murray, Scott Peterson, or the Delphi murders, Brett and I dig deep to bring you details you won't hear anywhere else. Our podcast is about more than just a story. We will walk you through the legal problems lurking behind every case, breaking down the complexities of the criminal justice system with humor and a personal touch. And it's not just true crime. We bring the same training and approach we've learned as prosecutors to classic mysteries like the Dyatlov Pass incident and the ghost ship Mary Celeste. So if you're looking for a true crime podcast with a different point of view, The Prosecutors is the one for you. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie.